it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have episode 264. Today, we thought we would answer one great listener question, and we're going to talk about a topic. We're going to go back to a basic and cover a basic in a little bit of detail, and then we'll move on to a little more advanced idea. So the topic that we're going to start off talking about is we're going to unpack the idea of risk and what that means in the stock market. It's a terminology that is thrown around a lot. But it really has kind of two different meanings. And it also has two different impacts on how you view your portfolio as well as companies you choose or don't choose. And so we thought this might be a nice, easy way for us to all ease into finance today. So let's talk about risk. So what to you is risk and how should we define that? I felt like I've always heard it defined by Dave Ramsey as it can feel like a roller coaster and you only get hurt if you jump off. Uh So the big risk with stocks is losing money. I think when people see their portfolio and they see a lot of red and a lot of stocks that have lost money, people feel like they've lost money. But really the reality is you haven't actually lost money until you sell the stock. Really how the stock moves from day to day shouldn't impact you because the only two points that matter are when you buy and when you sell. Mm -hmm. And so there has been so much talk and academic studies about everything in that middle part where the roller coaster is kind of moving around and volatility. But if you really boil it down to the basics, risk is the risk of losing money when you sell after you have bought. And I think that's so easy to lose because there's so many other complex opinions about risk and and all the other things in the middle. 
Mm-hmm. So I guess let's talk about volatility. A lot of people associate that with risk, but I don't think it really is part of the risk. It can be if it causes you to react a certain way. But you know what you were talking about, like really the only risk is we it goes to zero, that we lose all of our investment or we lose a large portion of our investment. So what's, what is volatility? For people who aren't familiar with that term, what does that mean? Yeah, volatility is if you look at a stock and you see it moving like your heartbeat monitor, that's volatility. <laughs> uh, the, the, the higher the spikes, the more volatility you have. And so it is tough. I mean, they do... There is this kind of underlying idea that the more volatile a stock is, the more risky it is. But that's not always necessarily the case. So how would you kind of like differentiate the two if you saw a volatile stock? Because it could be risky or it couldn't. So if you're a beginner investor, how do you think of that? That's a really good question. I think the way that I've learned to try to deal with it, when I first started investing, I didn't really understand the difference. And I felt like the volatility was the risk. And it wasn't until I realized that the risk is really more involved with losing money than it is the actual ups and downs on a daily basis. And I think understanding the idea of Mr. Market and how that mental model works where someone is going to show up at your door every day and and offer you a different price for the company for PayPal, for example, every day. And you have to choose whether you want to accept or reject to that price. And that to me is volatility. And I think Dave Ramsey's idea of the roller coaster is I think a really great way to visualize it because you're still going to enjoy the ride at the end of the ride, but you have to go through a lot of ups and downs through the course of the ride. And it can be depending on, you know, if you have a fear of heights like my fiance does, then a roller coaster is a pretty terrifying thing to go through. But if you're like me, where you love the higher, the faster, the more upside down it goes, the better, then you enjoy the ride throughout. And I think investing in stocks is the same kind of idea. You know, if you've owned Tesla over the last several years, been through a bit of a roller coaster and depends on when you got in and when you get out, how much you enjoy that ride. But there's certainly been a lot of ups and downs. And I think as a more experienced investor, I think the way that I try to interpret volatility or looking at it is it's a way of the market telling me they're unsure about the financial or business results that the company is producing. The more stable the company is producing, the more stable the results are going to be in the market. When you see a lot of volatility in the financial results of the company, you also will see a lot of volatility in the market related to that company as well. And it can also depend on, you know, flamboyant CEOs, i.e. Elon Musk, can cause a little bit of volatility along the way as well. But I think that's the way I try to think about it. How about you? Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. I would try to separate it, kind of like you're saying, separate what's happening with the stock ticker and look at the underlying business. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example like the steel industry. Steel's been around for a long, long time. If you're producing steel, there's not much way to differentiate yourself. My steel is not going to be any different from Dave's steel. It's a commodity. It's interchangeable. So when you have a commodity like that and there's no differentiation between what me and Dave are producing then the price of steel is completely supply and demand. And so the problem when you get into these products that take a long time to make like steel is you can have these big ups and downs 
in the steel market. The price of steel can go up and down a lot. So the companies that are producing this will see their earnings go up and down a lot. So that to me, that's a case where, yeah, actually, if the stock price is just following their earnings going up and down these huge swings because it's a commodity type business, to me, that is risk. That's the volatility matching the risk. But if I have like a great business like Microsoft or something, it's almost like you can take it to the bank that they're going to increase their revenue every year. If their stock price is swinging because one day they were popular and the next, you know, the next six months they're not, that doesn't mean that Microsoft as an investment is risky because you can look at the business versus the stock price. And so that's the big place I try to go because I try to avoid more volatile businesses. So I do that by looking at profits instead of looking at the stock price. And I think that can be a good place to start. Yep, I totally agree. The stock price is the one thing that we know for sure when we're looking at investing in companies. But I think that idea that you mentioned at the beginning where you talked about focusing on the fundamentals of the business and not the ticker in the market, I think is a great thing to help separate the volatility from the potential risk of the investment. Because when we buy stocks, we're buying a piece of that business. And the ticker is is a representative of what the market thinks the company is worth or not each and every day. But the business that we buy has the profitability of the company is only going to be determined every 90 days. And so we're not going to see that today they had great sales and tomorrow they have great sales, but maybe on Thursday and Friday, they don't have great. We, We don't see it broken down in that microcosm. We only see it on a 90-day basis at best. And so I think that helps me smooth out some of the volatility because I can really only look and see what happened yesterday from what the company tells me their last 90 days of results were. And I can only base my future on what I think they're going to do in the future. And it doesn't matter what it does next Thursday to you know, the overlying underlying stock price in the market, that's, I guess, a separate issue to me. And that's, I guess, how I help ground myself is that what I can control is what the company does. One of the companies that I follow, Ajin, which is a Dutch payments company, they only report results every six months. So, and you can see wild volatility in the company, but it's based on the market, not the actual financial results of the business, because those only come out every six months. And so you sometimes you look at it and go, why the heck is the company down 12% today? What happened? <laughs> and literally, there's nothing that happens, but there's other market forces that make the company move. But that to me is not the risk of investing in the company. The risk to me is more involved what they do every six months, as opposed to what happens on Tuesday. It's a great point. As you were talking, I realized I completely misspoke because literally this last quarter Microsoft missed on revenue. Uh, <laughs> I try to think of everything with investing kind of on the spectrum. And so if Ajin or Microsoft had one bad quarter or one bad year, that's a lot different than a steel company who has crazy swings every year. Right. Like you have to understand, yeah, there's going to be some maybe weaknesses in the business or a little bit of volatility, but that's a big difference between, hey, we five times our profit this year versus you know a more stable business that might see a lot less fluctuation in their profit. I hope that's helpful just to kind of to think of it on broader terms rather than, ooh, this company's risky because they stumbled last year or not. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. 
not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, I think it is. I think helping define the term risk and understanding the different components of it and how it can affect your investing I think is important for investors to understand because it can impact whether you stay in the market or whether you get out of the market. And I think once people understand that the business results matter in the long run, as opposed to the volatility of the stock price, I think that will help stabilize people when they think about their investments long-term because that's the biggest advantage we as individuals have is a longer-term horizon. And we can be patient. We can sit on our hands and not do anything and let the company do all the heavy lifting. And over time, the company will perform. And hopefully if we've done our job right, the company will perform and do a good job for us investing wise. So what are some practical ways that an investor can mitigate the risk? Well, I think the first one I think is pretty obvious is figuring out how to buy the company with a margin of safety, building in a risk load. Andrew talked about this when we were talking about margin of safety a few weeks ago, about building a bridge that can handle you know, up to 30,000 pounds of, you know, force of a truck and then only driving 10,000 pound trucks over the bridge and not pushing it to the 30,000. So I think by understanding buying the company for less than what it's worth gives you a margin of error in case you're wrong. 
And I think that helps avoid risky investments. I think that's, I guess, the first one. What would be some ones you would think of? Diversification comes to mind. So just this idea that instead of putting all your eggs in one basket, you put them in several baskets. And so that can be very helpful. As an example, if you were 100% in restaurant stocks in 2019, you could have had the best restaurant businesses in your portfolio and it wouldn't have mattered. So you can argue that that doesn't matter now because they've all recovered. But the reality is, is there have been industries of, you know, basically completely, I don't want to say disappeared, but have had really, really tough periods, airlines being another one. Mm -hmm. So you just don't know what's around the corner. And so to me, by having a lot of different businesses, you reduce that risk a lot because we don't know what the future holds. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And depending on your tolerance and your stomach, I think one thing that you could do to help reduce the impacts of volatility is to not look at your portfolio that much. There are some people out there that believe that you should only check your portfolio every quarter or every six months or even once a year. And to help reduce the access to information that we all have now, sometimes it could be really easy to look every single day or sometimes multiple times a day to see how your portfolio is doing. By doing that, you could react to volatility in a negative way by seeing something down and, oh my gosh, I got to get out of this because it's a terrible company. And it may not be a terrible company. It could just be that the market is all down that day or is, is having a down period. And those are things that can certainly impact your mental state of mind. And there are some people out there that believe that by not looking at their portfolio on a regular basis, it helps counteract that reaction to volatility. So my question to those people would be, how do you add new stocks? You just like putting <laughs> right. one hand over your eyes and like not memorizing um, the buy buttons here. I agree that looking at your portfolio less definitely helps with dealing with volatility. That's no question. Yeah. Yeah. I personally go through fits and phases. Like I'll have periods where I literally won't look at my portfolio for probably weeks. And then I'll have other periods where I'll look at it over like every single day. And it doesn't impact me one way or the other, but I just have noticed that the more I'm longer I'm doing this, the less interested I am in watching it every day. And I'm more interested in learning about the companies and staying focused on that because I can't control what happens to Ajin today versus tomorrow. That's beyond my control. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. All right, so let's move on, I guess, to a little more advanced idea. Before we dive into this, if there are any terminology or factoids or metrics that maybe we discuss in this next section that you're unfamiliar with, please check out our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. We have a, a ton of articles that are going to relate to this topic that we're going to talk about. And there's lots of great resources there that can help you define some of these things if you're not super familiar with it. We will try to break down as much as this as we can. But for those that are really beginners, uh, some of this may be a little bit overwhelming. So I wanted to give you just a bit of a heads up. So here's the question we got. It's a great one. So I'm a longtime listener and appreciate all your guys' teachings. The last episode on spinoffs was awesome. I have used the website a lot as well to further my understanding on topics and get into the nitty gritty. I was recently digging into REITs and going through the postings on FFO, AFO, NAV for REITs 
and it was a little unclear to me how you guys perform a DCF on REITs. I get the FFO and AFO are the earnings part, but do you still use a sales to capital ratio? Do you include taxes at all? Do you subtract debt? I realize this may be too complex to cover on the podcast. Nope, it's not. But thought it might provide a good write-up topic going through a specific example. I once again want to express my gratitude to you guys. I started off knowing nothing about the stock market and your podcast and website have really taught me so much. And this is all from Seth. So thank you, Seth, for that great question. And we appreciate the kind comments. It's a great question. So Andrew, let's start off and talk about what are REITs? Like for people that are not familiar with what is a REIT? What is that? Oh man, DCF, REIT, FFO, AFFO, NAV. <laughs> Acronym City. <laughs> so REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And the simplest way to think about it is it's a company that's buying up real estate. So you could go down to your local place wherever there's a few stores. Like I'm thinking of like Dick's Sporting Goods and like Bed Bath and Beyond, what's left of it, Dollar Tree. Like Petco, like this AMC, AMC, (laughs) right? Like a commercial real estate area that's generally owned by a REIT. I mean, there's individuals too, and you know, but a lot of REITs will own those. And basically, what they're doing is they're almost like crowdfunding their real estate business. So they are distributing pieces of their business in order to buy real estate, or they're issuing debt in order to buy real estate. And so if you own this REIT, you own part of their real estate portfolio, understanding that they're going to continue to try to buy more real estate. And then as that real estate, as the tenants like Petco and Dick's Sporting Goods and Dollar Tree, as those tenants pay the landlords, then part of that rent goes back to the REIT owners as a dividend. That's how I would try to describe it to somebody who's never heard of it. I think that's a great description. The REIT industry is a big industry and there's lots of different flavors of REITs that you could invest in. So Andrew was talking about commercial real estate. There's also real estate. You could buy land, you can buy forests, you can buy REITs that buy uh, health centers. centers, yeah. Yeah, data centers, health centers, apartment complexes. There's just about every sector of real estate you can think of. There's a REIT that covers it. And so it gives you the opportunity. The thing I like about REITs is it gives an investor the opportunity to have real estate in their portfolio without having to go out and gather up the capital to go buy a building to you know be involved in the real estate business. Now there's other aspects of the real estate business that I'm just generalizing. So you know, kind of keep that in mind. If you're just an average investor and you would like to have a slice of diversification by having some real estate, a REIT is a real easy way to kind of dip your toes into that. Now, one of the struggles with investing within REITs is that they have a lot of acronyms and the terminology is a little different than it is if you're going to buy a company like Microsoft or Google. And that's where kind of understanding the language of REITs can really help you get a better sense of how to value the companies, how to understand the business models and everything. So I guess, can we talk a little bit about FFO and AFO, maybe from like a 30,000 foot view so people can understand a little bit about, you know, try to, I guess, decode a couple more acronyms for everybody? Yeah, there are things that make the profit and loss statement of a REIT a little more muddy. So depreciation, for example, I think we can kind of understand what depreciation means And so that has a big impact on how a REIT's profit and loss statement looks like. And so they have other metrics like FFO, which stands for Funds from Operations. What they're trying to do is they're just trying to strip out all of the other stuff. 
The other thing that really muddies up their income statement is that they're probably a lot of them are buying and selling a lot of properties. So they're like selling the underperforming ones, buying what they think are better ones. That really makes the income statement messy too. So I might look at 2022 and have no idea how the properties under this re are doing because they've been flipping so many properties. I don't know what the core portfolio is doing. FFO tries to tell you what that is because it gives you basically the cash flows that are coming from that core portfolio of properties and reporting that. And that's a place that a lot of investors who are interested in REITs will start with is FFO. And then AFFO is just an extension of that where if I had a building and I was leasing to Petco, and if me as the landlord was responsible for maintaining that building, then I would have to make capital investments in order to make sure that the building's still going to stand in five years. And so that might be a an ongoing process with a lot of different properties. So AFFO includes a lot of those investments that some of these landlords have to make. And so if you think of that as a parallel to the investing, like regular kind of business world we're more familiar with, AFFO starts to sound a lot like free cash flow because a company does that too. Ford needs to make new EV vehicles they're going to build up a new plant in order to make the new EV vehicles. That's CapEx. And then whatever's left over is free cash flow. So it's the same thing with FFO and AFFO. AFFO is trying to tell you what the cash flow is after they have invested in the buildings, the long-term assets. And FFO is just trying to tell you how the core portfolio is doing before they're maintaining the properties. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I guess one of the things that people may get a little overwhelmed by those terminologies and some of those ideas and may think they may be sitting here thinking, how in the heck am I supposed to figure out how to calculate those? And most REITs will lay that out for you in their financial statements. So if you're reading their 10K or their their quarterly reports, they will list those that information out for you. So you can use our, our friend control F and just type in funds from operations or FFO and you'll find where they actually delineate in their statements what their funds from operations are. So you don't have to go through the hassle of trying to figure out a calculator and learn all the ins and outs of the terminology. It's a good idea to understand the line items and how they impact the number that's going in there. But as far as like having to actually dig through the statements to try to find the information, the REITs will do that work for you. So it'll help make that kind of whole idea, I guess, a lot easier to understand. And so I guess having that kind of information then, do we want to unpack maybe the idea of a DCF with a REIT and maybe how we would kind of approach that to help Seth and anybody else that's interested in trying to value these companies? Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where Hims can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms. No more awkward conversations. Just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. 
Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash investing. That's HIMS.com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. HIMSS.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I believe this will be the last acronym today, but no promises. <laughs> DCF stands for Discounted Cash Flow, and it's a valuation model where you're trying to determine the intrinsic value of an asset. So for this REIT, we're trying to figure out what should the price be in the stock market for this REIT. That's a DCF. There are several ways to calculate a DCF, which can make it complicated. He mentioned the sales to capital ratio, which is more the way you traditionally do DCFs. So do you want to give like a brief overview of that and whether you would use that for a REIT? Okay. Yep. So a sales to capital ratio is an idea that Professor Oswath Demodoran came up with that is a good way to measure the impact of investments that a business makes to grow. And so the basic gist of it is you take the capital that a company has and you measure the difference between year to year and you measure that against the growth in sales. And that's a ratio that you can use to help you project how much efficiency and how much sales they'll generate every single year from the capital in the business. And to, I guess, back up to a little higher level of understanding, when we're talking about capital, we're really talking about the assets that a business uses to grow every single year. And every company has different assets that they use. The assets that Microsoft has are different than the assets that Walmart has. And so they use, but they still use their the assets they have 
to grow their business every single year. And we're trying to measure that. And the sales to capital ratio is a is an easy way to do that and incorporate that into measuring that against the cash flows of a business. And traditionally, it's used typically, the way I use it and the way I've seen it used is using it in more, I'm going to use air quotes, air quotes, uh, traditional businesses. So companies like Walmart, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Tesla, PayPal, Visa, any of those kinds of companies that the income statements, the balance sheets, the cash flow statements all kind of lead you to a path to value the whole business. It's an easy way to value the whole business by using a sales to capital ratio. REITs alongside banks and insurance companies are kind of different beasts. And because they use debt in a different way than Walmart does, you have to value those companies in a different way. And so a sales to capital ratio, while great for helping measure the investments for Microsoft, it doesn't work so great for digital realty trust. And so I wouldn't use that kind of ratio for a REIT. And I guess that's kind of how I would, I guess, organize that idea. Moving past that, I guess, how would you look at trying to value a REIT? When I'm valuing a company, I'm primarily looking at the cash flow statement. And then you do the same thing that Dave talked about, where you want to figure out how much is a company reinvesting to grow. And you can also find that in the cash flow statement, you just have to be careful that you are looking at a long-term view of that, not just what happened last year. Because capital, long-term investments, these big capital investments like a new building might hurt a lot in one year, take the money and then it pays off over multiple years. You want to kind of factor that in for multiple years. In the sense of a REIT, you can just, in the same way you would take a cash flow statement to find out a company's free cash flow for the long term and use that for evaluation, you can do the same thing with their AFFO. That's the way I would look at it. You just substitute free cash flow per share for AFFO per share. And since I'm not looking at the balance sheet or the capital stack, you know, I'm not I'm not looking at a firm. I'm just looking at the cash flow statement. You're able to do that. Yep. That's exactly the way that I would do it as well. It's the one thing that I always try to tell people when you're looking at valuing companies, irregardless of the model or the method that you're doing, try not to get bogged down in the minutia and trying to create super complex models with lots of moving parts for and keep this idea or mental model in mind. You're looking for an approximation of value, not the precise price of entry. A lot of people sometimes, especially new people to investing, get bogged down in the minutia and they want to find out that I can buy this particular REIT at $45.27. That's not material. It's better to find a range of values that you think are going to be appropriate and then kind of trying to figure out how likely those are. Whereas as opposed to trying to define the the finite price because it doesn't exist. And Warren Buffett is not successful because he bought Apple at $84.19 a share. It <laughs> That doesn't have any bearing on how well he's done in his investment in Apple. And it's good to find it at a price less than what it's selling for. We all want a sale. We all want a deal. But don't get bogged down in the minutia. And I'll also give you this warning of not having super complex, lots of moving parts 
kinds of DCF models or models just in general, because the more inputs you have, the more margin of error you're going to have. The more you, the more moving parts you add to something like that, the more chance there is you're going to make a mistake, and that could throw off the valuation. And one of the things that I love about Professor Demoterin is that his models are as complex as they need to be, and not one iota more. And a lot of times he tries to to make things as simple as he possibly can. And you got to remember, this is a very smart man who's been teaching valuation for 30, 40 years. And he really knows this stuff in and out. And he tries really hard to make everything as simple as he possibly can to help make sure that we don't make mistakes because the, the more input you got, the more chance there is to, to make a mistake. And, and that's what I try to do as well. And I know Andrew does as well. So if you take a warning away from anything we're talking about, please always try to keep those kind of ideas in mind so you don't get bogged down in the minutia and having super complex models. Well, with that, everyone, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I wanted to thank Seth for sending us that fantastic question. That was a great question. And please keep sending these fantastic questions, guys. You guys ask really, really insightful, great questions and really make Andrew and I think and stretch. And it's a lot of fun for us to talk about all these things. And again, if there's any terminology that we discussed later in the show or even earlier in the show, please check out our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. Very big search bar at the top of the page. You type in AFO or you can even type in risk and you'll find out lots of great questions or lots of great articles. There's over 1,300 articles now on there. So there's plenty of opportunity for you to find something to learn on the website. And it's a resource there exactly for that to help you learn the great art of investing. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.